Is it his time? Yes! Maybe. Yes, sir! From their little studio in South Africa, it's time for The Long and Short of It with Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Hello and welcome to another episode of The Long and the Short of It. I'm Simon Hill. Usually, alongside me, not too close though because it's a bit weird and we observe social distancing here in our little studio, would be Dylan Rogers. No Dylan today, but I do have his sick note, so he is excused. Coming up in today's episode, Dale and I chat to two-time major winner and former Ryder Cup captain, Ben Crenshaw. And let me tell you, as gentlemen and scholars of the game go, they don't get much better than Ben Crenshaw. So sit back, relax, and join us as we talk to the man they nicknamed Gentle Ben about those two Masters wins, his lifelong mentor and friend, Harvey Pennick, his approach to golf course design, and if you're South African and happen to be listening, there's a connection there, and of course, that famous Ryder Cup win back in 1999. Oh, and before I forget, please, at the end, don't forget to like and rate this podcast, and if you'd like to be notified immediately when a new chat comes out, then why not subscribe to the channel? Okay, that's enough of that. Time now for today's chat with Ben Crenshaw. The long and short of it. Ben Crenshaw was born to play golf. Ben Crenshaw has done his survey here from about 60 feet. Slow now. But this is, that's one of the greatest putts I've ever seen. Ben Crenshaw has won the Masters for a second time. I don't know how I got through this week. Uh, it was a, an emotional week. Ben Crenshaw, welcome to the long and the short of it. It's wonderful to have a two-time Masters champion and former Ryder Cup captain on our podcast. Uh, how is Gentle Ben these days? <laughs> uh, listen, I'm just a friend of Dale. <laughs> we, go, we go back a long way. I'll tell you, what, I, my, one of my first recollections of Dale I think it was in Buenos Aires in Argentina in 1972 where we played the World Cup, and Dale won it. But I, I think I, – I don't know if I would met him yet, but I said, who is this big guy from South Africa with these big sloped shoulders? And he pulled out a one-iron and he hit it past everybody's drivers. <laughs> and he just played so well. Everything about his game was admirable. But uh, just a – just a wonderful, wonderful player, a wonderful guy, but uh, so good to see him. Uh, uh, I know I've known all of his mates in South Africa for a long time: Nicky Price, and Mark McNulty, and all these wonderful players, and Simon Hobday, uh, who <laughs> who legion, legions of stories about Simon. But all you know, all of them had a commonality: they all struck the ball very squarely. Beautiful players. I've often thought, too, to me that uh, South Africa playing golf in South Africa, kind of like Australia, you learn to play against the elements. You know, firm firm features, playing some wind. Uh, it rounds your game out quite quite a bit. So I think it had a lot to do with, with South Africans' uh, play around the world. Uh, they were very experienced. Have you been out to South Africa? Have you played a bit of golf here in your time? You know, I haven't played that much. I played Sun City one year. God, that was 1985. Uh, but no, I haven't played much in South Africa. Uh, I can certainly remember watching the President's Cup where uh, our old friend John Bland had a great fit to do with the, with the golf course there. 
Van Court, and it looked looked wonderful. But uh, no, I've just always admired the South Africans, the way they played, and how much they knew about the game. One of my prized possessions too is I had a lovely letter from Bobby Locke uh, before he passed away, and uh, I, I would always hear stories from Gary Player and Nick Price. Uh, about what a wonderful player and wonderful putter he was. I actually met him at the Open Championship at Turnberry in uh, 1977. We got to meet, uh, share a story or two about some of his American friends, Jim, Jimmy DeMerit, Ben Hogan, and Byron Nelson. But uh, what a lovely chap he was. Ben, uh, he addressed you when we started this interview. He addressed you as Gentle Ben. <laughs> that has to be... The, the name, so far from the truth. Yeah. <laughs> Dale, you're so right. Uh, and listen, you know, our old friend Ben Wright, who commentated so many years for CBS and BBC, he would always look at me and said, you are not gentle, Ben. You are violent, Ben. <laughs> you are violent, Ben. <laughs> But tell us how the nickname Gentle Ben came about, because I think it was an Austin sports writer, Dick Collins, who first used it and, uh, <laughs> yeah, speaking, uh, very much tongue-in-cheek, wasn't he? Yes, he was. I had a pretty good temper uh, in those days, and uh, I think it was, yeah, a play a play on the name, no, no doubt about that. But uh, I, 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 I was friendly at some junctures, but when I got on the course and make a stupid mistake, like we all do, I'd get very upset. So it was a moniker that stuck. <laughs> you talk about uh, you talked about Bobby Locke and and um, what a great putter you heard he was. Obviously, you were a great putter as well yourself. And um, a lot of people compare the two of you as two of the all-time greatest putters. Didn't you get to play around with Bobby Locke at the Open Championship? Uh, Bruce Litsky and Bill Rogers and I were going to tee off. Uh, in a practice round, and Mr. Locke came down. He was by himself, and he said, he said, do you chaps mind if I go ahead? And we said, oh, absolutely not, Mr. Locke. And that's when I started talking about Jimmy DeMerit and, and, and Bobby Locke playing the ukulele and this and that. Uh, we just got, we got on so well, and I, I'll never forget, he got up and addressed that ball, and he addressed it way out in the right rough, and he slung it out there, and it was, the ball was in midair, and he started to tip his hat. It was in midair, and it just came right around in the middle of the fairway. It was the most beautiful thing. I think one of his phrases was, he said, you know, you have 14 clubs in your bag. He said, uh, never, never try to hit the ball hard. It was just very common sense, but, I mean, he could really outthink people. And he had, as uh, I guess it was Peter Thompson who said he had the constitution of a rhinoceros, and he, he could just, nothing bothered him, totally unflappable, which served him in great stead all throughout his career. Uh, after a while, you win all those open championships and so many tournaments around the world. And I always loved, he had just had a great, great sense of humor, and, you know, I think, think it was Gary Player who said, uh, he said he was one asked, he said, well, Mr. Locke, do you advocate uh, holding on with your left hand or your right? And he said, no, I hold on to with my left hand and I take the checks with my right. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, we all know that Bobby Locke was a fantastic, fantastic player. But Ben, how great do you think he would have been 
had he played in America for longer? Oh, my God. Well, you know, right at the inception of him coming to America, he won every tournament. He won so many tournaments, it was unbelievable. I, you know, it was Ben Hogan and Byron Nelson and all these people, you know, they said, well, God, this guy's he's winning everything. They did everything they could do for for to set up the golf courses. I mean, he had he had that beautiful draw, and they tried to put the pin placements on the right sides of the greens, but that didn't bother him. He just figured out a way to keep playing them, but he just kept he kept winning, and I think it was a great old story. There was some betting going on amongst the players, and Lloyd Mangrum was a tough old guy. He won the U.S. Open, and uh, he was in our armed forces at Purple Heart. But, you know, he, Bobby Lockett ended up with his car. He betted and ended up with Lloyd Mangrum's car. But, no, he, he, he beat everybody. He beat everybody. <laughs> you know, Ben, you talk about, you mentioned Peter Thompson. Peter Thompson came and they played a big series of exhibition matches. They played 30-something matches around South Africa. And uh, eventually, after about halfway, he said to Bobby Locke, he said, he said, I've just worked it out. You hit every drive short of mine, so you put the pressure on me by hitting your second shots on the green first. Tomorrow, <laughs> tomorrow I'm going to hit my drive short of yours. Bobby Locke said, well, then we're both going to have very long second shots. <laughs> I mean, he could he could out thank you outwit you. Uh, I think everybody was fascinated by him. You know, he, he, they called him Old Muffin Face. You know, and he was just just a wonderful creature. Uh, but he was very very nice to me. I think that when I mentioned Jimmy Demerit, it gave him a big smile because he really loved Jimmy Demerit. But no, when Bobby Locke came to the United States, he he started beating everybody. And I you know I guess he wasn't popular in that regard. He was a wonderful chap. But I still cherish that letter. He wrote me this beautiful letter, and I've got it. <laughs> oh, very cool. What does it say? Oh, it said, congratulations on your performance. It was after my 1984 Masters win. But uh, no, he was very light. You know, I can I just, I can see his, his writing right now. You know, the, his name on the tops of some of the clubs that he endorsed. And it was a lovely letter. It's one of my prized possessions. Let's get let's get back to to Ben Crenshaw and how it all started. How did you get into the game, and then the influence of Harvey Panic in your game, and obviously, the, I, and I I don't mean this in a negative way, but the rivalry between you and Tom Kite. Tom Kite came to Austin when he was eleven years old. Uh, I was nine years old when Tom came, and I started the game when I was seven. And my brother, who's 14 months older, uh, 15 months older, started about the same time. We just started knocking the ball around. My dad was a pretty good player. He was a lawyer. And everyone was sort of under Harvey Penick's wing. And he would take a look at you. He talked very much like an old Scott would. Man, a few words, but very practical, a very traditional way of, of teaching. He taught a good grip. And he sort of turned us out loose when he loved the fact that we had some kids to play with that were pretty good. And, you know, when I first saw Tom Kite, I said, yeah, that's a pretty good player there. So we had a great rivalry, great friendship. And, you know, I, we always thought if we could beat each other in the tournament, we had accomplished something. So, Ben, tell us about the first time you had a round of golf with Tom Kite when you were kids, because from what I understand, it was a pretty memorable moment. Oh, it was unbelievable. My brother and I 
we're playing in cutoff jeans and a couple of ragtag clubs. And here comes this guy, 11 years old. He looked like a golf pro. He had slacks on. <laughs> he had a big red Wilson golf bag with brand new men's Wilson staff clubs. And we just couldn't believe it. Like, wow, what, who is this? And the clubs were a little bit big for him. And he took a swing on the first hole and the club, the club had jumped the ball. And we went, well, we didn't say anything about, you know, but he adjusted and he played pretty good after that. But uh, he, he was outfitted like a young pro. Bobby Paddock is a legend. Uh, uh, the book he wrote, the little red book was the biggest selling book in the history of, of sports. I think, I mean, some of the, some of the, uh, the tips that he gave you over the years, I'm sure you remember some of them. Maybe just help us and pass them on to some of our listeners. Harvey uh, very much stressed the short game, uh, chipping and putting. Uh, our first little shots <clears throat> that he wanted us to perform was a little seven iron chip and run from just off the green. And he said, now, look, I want you boys, I want you to just practice with one ball. I want you to chip that ball up there and then go knock it in the hole. He said, now you're playing golf. And uh, the best thing to do is play a little match against somebody, chip for, you know, a Coca-Cola or something like that. And he, he didn't want, he said, I don't want you to hit a pile of balls here. I want you to play that one ball, chip it up there and knock it in. And uh, very practical. He did, he, he taught like that very much, very much a stickler on your, on the grip. He said the grip tells a lot of the story. He, he, he advocated a little bit stronger grip than a neutral grip. You know, people would always say, well, you know, Ben Hogan uh, says to hold the club like this. And, and old Harvey would say, well, look, you're not Ben Hogan. <laughs> but <laughs> he wanted us to have a proper turn, wind up and hit it. Uh, but he, he just did not want to change us so much. He was just fascinating the way that he taught. He, he just had a practical way of, of teaching. He, he had such a kind heart that he, he wanted people to play with what they had. Uh, I'm talking, you know, higher handicappers, but, <clears throat> but the good players that came in, you wouldn't believe how many women professionals came in. They, they were so good, you can't believe it. Betsy Rawls, Mickey Wright, Betsy Cullen, and all these wonderful, wonderful women who came and, and uh, saw Harvey. And we said, God, and Kathy Whitworth, they said, there might be something to the way that he taught. But he had a wonderful college team. He was the coach of the University of Texas team for so many years. Harvey said the two easiest lessons he ever gave were to Don January and Mickey Wright. And he would watch them hit a few seven irons, a few five irons, a few three irons. And he finally said to each one of them, he said, you know something? I can't tell you anything that would help you. I think you ought to put your clubs in the trunk and go find the next tournament. <laughs> That's what he said to each one of them. <laughs> and as competitive as you and Tom were, very, very different players, the way you guys approached the game and the way that Harvey treated the two of you because, yeah, from a coaching perspective, he handled you two very differently, didn't he? Very much so. He told Tom, he would always meet Tom on the practice tee and he said, Ben, you just go play. Uh, he knew that I was not uh, so much of a practicer 
uh, I, you know, I, I tried it many, many times in my career to hit a lot of balls, but my mind would wander. And I had a lot of benefit of just going out and playing and maybe playing a couple of balls. But Tom Kite has worked as hard as anybody that I ever saw. And maybe in today's game, nobody's ever worked harder than VJ Singh. I've never seen anybody hit so many balls. But no, he knew what was good for us, uh, each one of us. So he went that way. I just want to go back to that famous little red book and digging around, trawling. I discovered this, which I thought was really, really interesting. In the first year, the little red book sold over a million copies, immediately became the highest selling golf book ever published. But, and I think it was clear at the time, so much more than a golf book, given who Harvey was. One scribe saying the little red book is only a manual of golf. If Moby Dick is about angling, and the Merchant of Venice is a guide to investment. I mean, that's how revered this book was. Probably Sliz. <laughs> wow. Well, you know, we had this wonderful author, uh, Bud Schrake, who, who was a great Texas writer. And he did the best job with Harvey to put those thoughts together and bring them out. And the pages that people read in those books is just how Harvey was. Uh, very kind, very thoughtful. He only was educated through the eighth grade, but he became a reader. He read everything that he could to communicate his thoughts and his words to, to his pupil. His words are very, very lasting, easy to comprehend. You know, when, when, you, when you really come up with it, you know, I, I think that our youth today around the world is taught to hit the ball and hit it hard, which I think he, he agreed with that. But he said the little shots in the game mean, mean so much to your score and mean the competition as well. And you've got to get the ball in the hole. You, you see it time and time again, Dale and I have been players for a long time. And, you know, you can, you can pick out the first 15 finishers in any tournament around the world, women, juniors, professionals, they will have chipped and putted well, and their short games would have been sharp that week. So it doesn't change the tournament that Dale won. He hold, hold some putts that he wanted to, and they went down at the proper times. And uh, it really helps you go on to the next hole and the next day. And uh, Augusta obviously was very special for you. And uh, your, your two wins at Augusta, I think, would have been the highlight of your playing career. 1984, 1995. Why was it always, even from before you won, so special to you? I played twice as an amateur at Augusta and uh, came to love the course, and I was fascinated by it. I wanted to learn more about it. You know, Harvey was really like my second father. He was to so many uh, wee juniors. He would just dispense a common piece of advice before I went. He, he just said, play like Ben. Which sort of, uh, if I was thinking about different ways to get better quickly, I think we all suffer from that. You tend to stray away from your natural ability. You know, all of us want to improve quickly. And sometimes we take shortcuts that we weren't supposed to, really. But Harvey was always there to keep you on an even keel. He said, look, proper alignment. He said, think, pay attention before the ball's hit. Get comfortable and swing away. Uh, I kept it very simple that way. But my wins, uh, my two wins were, yeah, both times my short game was sharp. But I had enough times where I did not get so upset with myself as I did so many times in my career. It cost me so many times. I had 
<clears throat> some good play in some tournaments, and then I'd do something silly, and it would stay with me a few holes. And I was not great in that way in my career. I, uh, if things kind of went a little more smoothly, then I was not apt to boil over. Uh, the, the second one was unbelievable. Uh, we had just buried Harvey. Tom Kite and I were pallbearers. We came back to Austin to, to bury him, and then we went back out to Augusta that evening. And then the next next day, I, I couldn't believe it. Tried not to think about it so much, but I had a calmness that week. I'd never played a tournament. Dale, you know how hard this is. I, I played that whole tournament with only five bogey, and uh, that's very unlike me. But uh, I had a calmness and a peace that week that, that I, I never could figure it out for the longest time. I was very, very proud of the way I played. But, fellas, i got to be really honest. I've thought about it a million times. But Harvey was such a good man. I think the good Lord above was honoring Harvey through me, got me through that week. Well, I think it was your wife who, who coined the phrase. She said, you got a lot of Harvey bounces that week. Well, you've got, you know, to win any tournament, you have to be fortunate. You know, a ball that looks like it's going to catch the edge of the bunker if it just misses, uh, or, or, or a putt that goes down, you know, after a save in a bunker. And I did pull the ball on the second hole, Dale, you know how disastrous that is. And it caught a limb and it dropped down, and I ended up making a birdie on that hole. 13 was, I had hit a drive around the corner there, and I don't think I ever hit a ball farther on that hole. I had a five iron to the green, and I pulled the ball left of the green over into that swale. And I knew I had to get that ball up and down, you know, to keep pace with everybody. And I made a sort of desperate 18-footer for a four, and that calmed me down quite a bit. Well, in the absence of Harvey, up steps longtime caddy, Carl Jackson. What was his role that week? Because you gave him a lot of credit. Well, first of all, Carl and I worked for so many years together. He knew me through and through. He actually had for me on tour for one year. We won the Colonial Tournament in Fort Worth. But uh, I had come into Augusta that year, 1995, not playing that well. I had missed the cut in New Orleans. And I came in early in the tournament. Uh, and we practiced on Sunday, and he just said, Ben, you're too fast. You're swinging too fast. He said, I want you to slow down. And he said, I also want you to put that ball a little further back in your stance and take a tighter turn. And, boy, I, I mean, I started hitting the ball solidly, and my confidence in, had grown. And then, you know, I had to go back to Austin to Barry Harvey. I mean, all this happened. It was unbelievable. So, when I came back to Augusta and started practicing before the tournament, Carl watched the same things. And it was it was as if Harvey was right there telling me something practical, you know, through Carl. Unexplainable, really. But, you know, gosh, I, I was eager to start the tournament. I, I had this swing thought, uh, which was calming. And I started out and played well the first day without too many mistakes, held on the second day. And I just didn't have any extraneous thoughts. And I was playing my favorite tournament in the world. I had this calmness about it that I couldn't explain. But then it got a little more serious on, on Saturday. And uh, Sunday, I was determined to, to keep going out with the same thought. I just kept going. And, and as I said, I, I, I had five bogeys for the whole week. And also, you didn't look at a leaderboard until 15. Very unlike you. Uh, very unlike me. I was just playing the course as hard as I could. I tried to concentrate on my game. And things kept happening in a positive manner. 
And as I, w- I went for number 15 and two and knocked it over the green, uh, and I did not get the ball up and down, but I did see a leaderboard and, and it said that Davis Love had finished with a great round. And I knew I had to have a birdie or two to, to overhaul him. And lo and behold, I birdied 16 and then I birdied 17, which was great insurance. 17, that was the prettiest putt I ever hit. Twisting putt and it was fast. And wow, when that putt went down, it was such a relief. But, uh, you know, Carl, I, Carl did say, he said, come on, we got one more hole to play. <laughs> but I was starting to break, believe me. Um, I hit a good tee ball at 18. Oh, it was. I, I was walking down the hill and then back up to the hill, and I, I, I finally, it, something, it was starting to catch me. I said, how is this happening this week? This week. And I, I was all starting to really come to my – I don't know how I kept my concentration that long. Something told me to just keep playing the course, but all of a sudden it started to hit me. And no, slack second shot on 18 and somehow got through it. And uh, thank goodness I had an insurance stroke. But, uh, <laughs> and Ben, when you knocked that putt in at 18 and you, you broke down and Carl was holding you, I mean, that was one of the great celebrations of all time. It really was. When everybody knew what you'd gone through in the previous six days, you know, and, and you'd come through and won, it, won the Masters, it was it was absolutely unbelievable. I just let go. I really did let go, and it was it, it was I crumpled, and I'll never forget when when Big Carl came down to lend me a hand, put his hand on my shoulder. He said, "Buddy, are you okay?" And I said, "No, I'm not." Oh, <laughs> 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 uh, it was. Yeah, I had to let it all go. <laughs> when in Augusta, obviously, there there are lots of Wonderful things that go with winning Augusta. Uh, one is money, <laughs> but but a lot of other things. For example, you get invited back for life. You go to the Champions Dinner. Now the Champions Dinner, you have become the host. Am I right in saying that? I, Dale, I'm sort of the unofficial host, and I start off the dinner with just a couple of comments, and uh, I'll tell you how that happened. Uh, I was sitting at my home one day and Byron Nelson called me on the phone and Byron had been, he was very close to Clifford Roberts and uh, Mr. Roberts wanted to, to have Byron sort of start the dinner off with a few comments about the champions and what they had done and what they had meant to the club through the years. And he'd always have an announcement to make, but all of a sudden one day he called me at my home and he said, Ben, it's Byron Nelson. He said, look, he said, I've been going over there since 1935, and I can't physically make it this year. And he said, I want you to take over uh, and make a few comments for the dinner. Uh, Dale, I, I literally dropped the phone. I dropped the telephone, and he said, what happened? I said, Miss Nelson, I dropped the phone. <laughs> and I said, that is so very nice of you. He said, look, Ben, I know you love history, and you love this place so much. And he said, I just want you to just start off very nicely, keep it keep it short, and keep the dinner moving, but I want you to take over. And I went, wow, okay. So that's how that happened. I throw in a little history there, here, and there. And I must tell you, there were 27 champions this year, which I was amazed that there were that many because of COVID and everything this year. Wow, what a strange tournament it was this year. It was no, no gallery ropes, 
and just a smattering of people out there. But I can tell you that Tiger Woods made one of the nicest talks and really told us of how what the tournament meant to him at this stage in his life and what that win meant to him. And hugging his little boy, Charlie, made him think of his father. It was really a very succinct, humble speech, and it was very touching. He's had a, he's had a, a good part in his life. And I said, a number of us watched his son play the other day, which was amazing. And the tournament was going, wow, how about this kid? It was really a lovely speech. And we all appreciated it. Gary, your friend, got up there and talked. And he, Gary just he keep, goes around the world with everything. It was a wonderful talk and what the tournament has always meant to him as a three-time winner. And, there, and we all said, well, Jack, do you want anything? And he said, no, I think Gary said it all. <laughs> <laughs> so they're great buds, as you know. But it's something, Dale, to look at those players and you look at the, the whole, the decades of champions and you think about the history of the game and how, how people did play. And usually what's really fascinating, we always ask the older ones, what, you know, what clubs they hit in the greens, what, what clubs that they had back then, what was the ball like? I always remember Byron Nelson saying a long time ago, we always said, well, Byron, how was it? playing way in those days he said oh my gosh he said he said two things you know when they used to drive to tournaments he said you were only as good as your tires and i went oh that was that's he said he said yeah he said and and if we ever got a good ball we'd play with it a few holes and i went oh my gosh but that's how it's come so far you know they we've got these clubs now and uh, we're in an, we're in an era where, you know, you and I never dreamed that we'd be seeing the ball hit like it is these uh. days. And with the clubs and the balls, you know, it's a new game. To take this way further back, it <clears throat> must have been the same as y'all can think about when hickory shafts went out and then steel shafts came in. And then, uh, you know, the, the well, it went from the, the gutta percha ball into the rubber cord ball and turned the century. And you, you think, well, the game's completely changed. You know, the whole world's gone crazy now. But if you think, if we're seeing things, you can imagine what, what the game was like back then and what these innovations were like. So it is a different game. God, nearly everybody carries the ball 300 yards it's just unfathomable but you know as long as they don't change the size of that cup it's going to be in the hole exactly Exactly. you know they've just announced that lee elder is going to join jack nicholas and gary player on the first tee in april at augusta you know i can't wait to the day that ben crenshaw joins them i know you're far too young you're far too young for that but uh, I can't wait for that day because I think it's something that you you really do deserve. Oh, Dale, you're very nice. Said, uh, you know, may, maybe I can get up there and top it down the hill or something. No, I, no, I, I uh, always have a great recollection of when I first played there in 1972 with two old chaps, Freddie McLeod, who won <laughs> the 1908 U.S. Open, and Jock Hutchinson who won the 22 Open Championship at St. Andrews. And they just, you know, they were 86 and 88 years old, uh, respectively. It's just amazing. 
the place is very special and I'm, you know, I, I have to pinch myself each time I think that I'm a master champion, but uh, God, I'm so proud uh, of that. But, you know, the people there never change. The lovely people that we've met through the years, Julie and I, it's a special time in our life to go back over there and see the people around the tournament, people who run the tournament. And I must say, Fred Ridley is a wonderful chairman. He is just as smooth as glass. A wonderful man and a great player in his own right. You know, he won the 77 U.S. Amateur. It's in good stead. The one person that I think you miss greatly, and I think we all miss, and I'm sure he's missed very much at Augusta, is Severiano Ballesteros. Wow, Dale. I, 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 don't, I don't think I've ever seen a more exciting player in my lifetime, I, you know, I played a few times with Arnold Palmer. You know, he, he had so much charisma, but there's there was born in Sevilla charisma and a player and a competitor like like no one. I, I, I always used to love to watch him before he hit the ball because you knew exactly what he was going to try. His mannerisms and the way that he set up into the ball – and you can see his imagination just turn. His gait, the way that he walked down the fairways, he was so proud. His head was way up high, and he was charging. And, God, he was – what a competitor. Man, he was he was coming after you. But a, a lovely man. I got to know him very well. And he just – he was something to watch. He meant so much to the European tour, as you know. But around the world, he was – God, was he exciting to watch. Powerful. What a touch. I, I don't think there's a better short game that I ever saw. Uh, he could just do anything. <clears throat> I'll tell you one story about Seve. One day at the TPC in Jacksonville, we were practicing on the, on the range over there. They had a bunker. And a couple of our, our guys, we were trying to practice this little, short little bunker shot with a very steep face. Real short bunker shot you know with a sand wedge and we were pretty proud of the shots that we were hitting and Seve comes along and he goes no 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 three iron and we're going what a three iron he said man watch and he got away from that ball wide stance and he flipped it up there just like we were flipping it up there with a sand wedge it was just astounding as y'all know he he was born with that three air, and that was his only club, and he'd hit it off the beach in Spain. But, I mean, he he just learned. He loved the game. He loved figuring it out. But, man, was he excited. Ben, I want to go back to 1985 when you and your partner, Bill Kerr, start your golf course design firm. Because apart from obviously being a great player, you're also very well known in golfing design circles. But I want to chat specifically about how you ended up naming the firm because it was during an interview with Ron Witten. Tell us how that played out and how Kerr and Crenshaw came into being. Well, I, you know, I, Dale, you know, as, as tournament players, we get to travel. And I, I, when I was 16 years old, I went to Boston and uh, I played the country club in Brookline. And I was fascinated with that course. Uh, I, I'd never seen anything like it. I started falling in love with the competition and golf architecture all in that one week. And my head was in a book, uh, architecture book from then on. And I'd go make these side visits to these courses I'd read about. I had always 
and in the back of my mind wanted to ally myself with someone someday to build courses and I was introduced by a couple of friends about this guy named Bill Coor, who started his career with Pete Dye. And uh, another one of Pete's construction foreman mentioned to me, he said, you need to meet my friend Bill Coor. And so we hit it off. And Bill was not interested in having a partnership with someone. So we got to know each other. I'd seen his first solo design on the Texas coast, it's called Rockport Country Club, and I liked what I saw. We thought, well, we'll have a go at this. And, uh, you know, we, we Ron Whitten, as you mentioned, was the architecture uh, editor for Golf Digest, and uh, he knew Bill. And he had an interview with us one day, and he said, well, you, you guys are forming a partnership. What do you call it? And I thought for a minute, right off the top of my head, I said, well, it, it's Coor and Crenshaw. And Bill... Bill kind of went like he because I didn't we didn't discuss it, so I thought it had a better ring than Crenshaw and Coor. So Coor and Crenshaw stuck, and it's so appropriate. <laughs> it's so appropriate because Bill is is uh, I follow Bill. Uh, I mean, I, I Dale I could not ask for a finer person, but Bill is very very patient. He's got a great gift. He's one of the greatest golf course routers that I've ever seen. He can assess a piece of property pretty quickly, and he is so patient. And uh, I, I help him with the routing, but he's in the in the inception stage. He starts coming up with a sequence, and we work on it together. It's a wonderful thing. I couldn't ask for a, a, a better partner. Well, I'll tell you this: I made two great decisions in 1985. I married my wife Julie, and <laughs> and formed a partnership with Bill. Two great things happened that year. <laughs> Brilliant. That golf course that's in the picture behind you, I, am I right in saying that's called Sheep Ranch? You're right. You're, you're right. It's brand new. It's brand new. Sits right on the ocean out there on the Pacific in Oregon. And uh, really, really fun. Very, very natural. To sort of summarize a lot of our work, is we'd rather take a good piece of land and do little things to it. Then there's a lot of people in our business who can move a lot of dirt and move it well and make it look natural, but we're not comfortable with that. There's a lot of really talented people who do better than, than we would on a, on a piece of property. So we're fairly judicious about the land that we work with. And we have some workers who some guys who's worked with us a long time and we just go, we're, we're definitely on the natural side. There's no question about that and work with land. Well, Ben, you can't talk to two South Africans and not mention the godfather of golf course design, Alistair McKenzie, not because, well, he obviously had a huge influence on you, but because he also has a South African connection, doesn't he? Well, absolutely. Because, you know, it, it, when he watched the, the Boer War, he saw how cunning that the enemy was you couldn't detect barricades or hiding places. And I mean, when you start thinking about that and uh, there was a reason why the British army retained Dr. McKenzie in the art of camouflage, but that's where he learned in South Africa. You know, there's a distant correlation, no doubt. And it stuck with Dr. McKenzie, his, the rest of his career. And he was probably the most, natural and the most vivid architect 
but he worked with the land. His writings were fascinating. One of the most fascinating books that I've ever read is a great, great book, The Spirit of St. Andrews. And it's, it's a diary of his. And it's, it's fascinating reading his thoughts and what he thought about a piece of property and how he was going to treat it. There's so much to be learned about it. I have always been fascinated with it. But, you know, there are people who you, you study and you listen to, and he was right at the pinnacle of his profession. After all, you start thinking about the places where he worked, Cypress Point and Paso Tiempo and Augusta, you know, Royal Melbourne. Royal Melbourne, to me, is just one of my favorite places. I had two of the most beautiful golf courses there. God, his influence was unbelievable. Royal Adelaide. Uh, and, and to think that the man was only there a month in Australia. But he, what he did was recognize a couple of really talented people in Alex Russell, who was a great champion, many, many times Australian Open champion. But boy, what a talent he had. And then this greenskeeper, Mick Morecambe, who he just said was the finest greenskeeper he ever saw. I mean, I, I think about some of the tournaments that I've played at Royal Melbourne, and it's just, oh, it's enthralling. Ben, I'll tell you an interesting story about, you know, Dr. McKenzie and the the uh, the way that the Boers used to hide. There's a golf course in a town in South Africa called Kimberley, and the golf course, don't try and pronounce this because you'll have no chance, <laughs> but the golf course is called Machersfontein. Try that. Only you can do that, Dale. <laughs> <laughs> and and this golf course, this golf course is built within within a few miles of where that that battle actually happened, where the really? Boers dug themselves in. Yes, you can see it. And the owner of this golf, it's a relatively new golf course, and it was built by the person who owned the farm. And he told me the story, and he said that's where it happened, right over there, sort of five or six miles away. And unfortunately, this 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 gentleman passed away before he could actually play his own golf course that he built, which was very, very sad. But oh, it's quite interesting about, about Alistair McKinney. That is fascinating, Dale. That is fascinating. God, that's, you know, to think about that and how he retained, you know, such, such common sense, really, but that's an art, though. That's an art. The camouflage is an art. And uh, to take slopes and to take ideas that you want to conceal things from the enemy. And when you think about golfers, you know, you're playing against nature. The finest courses in the world are, are nature-made. There's so much study and there's so much dissemination about what people think about what a golf hole should look like. Some people like a very clean look. Some people like a very manicured look. I am sort of tend to be a little more natural uh, and, and a little more not unkempt, that's the wrong word, but something that looks like it's been there f- for a while. We try to work towards that. And, and uh, some, of the, some of the best courses in the world to me have that natural element and the, the lines are not so clean, let's say. Ben, it's been a, it must have been a real blast for you to be able to redo, well, yourself and your partner, to redo uh, uh, Pinehurst. Um, oh. You've done some work at Bandon Dunes. You've done Stream Song, that course in the background there, which is at Bandon Dunes, the Sheep Rod, Cabot Link, Sand Valley. You know, you've done so so many wonderful new golf courses. 
Unfortunately, um, it sounds like your the course that you are hoping to build in Scotland may not happen at the moment, which is which is very very unfortunate. But let's. I want to ask you a difficult question, a difficult one for you to answer. <laughs> um, you've got other great architects. You've got you know Tom Doak, Gil Hansey. You've got obviously right. Jack Nicholas and Tom Weisskopf. You've got lots of other great architects. Of the of those other architects, other people's courses. If you had to choose three courses you wanted to go and play of other people's new courses, which would they be? Well, I, first of all, I think I think Gil Hans and Tom Doak uh, are two people that we really admire quite a bit. We love their crews. We we think a little bit alike in philosophy. You know, you're right, Dale. You know, a little bit of a disappointment in the Scottish course, but it's understandable. You know, people. You know, not not all people are on board with with golf, but but no, that, that's fine. But I played two courses Dale recently in the state of Georgia, and one was Gil Hans, and the name of this course is Ohoopy, and it is outstanding. It's outstanding, very sandy, sandy nature in in Georgia, <clears throat> beautiful golf course. Tom Fazio built another course that we played. That's I mean wonderful. Wonderful golf course it's, uh, called Congaree. That just just wonderful. But Tom Doak has done some wonderful work. He really has. You know what? Our friend Jeff Ogilvy in Australia, he's gotten together a crew. I've always loved talking golf with Jeff Ogilvy. He's a very very learned chap, and a wonderful player. But he's always had a great architectural bent. And of course, through the years, I always picked Jack Nicholas's brain and Tom Weisskopf. You know Tom Weisskopf is not doing well, Dale. He's got, I've heard that. It's very sad. Yeah. He, he was always one that I enjoyed talking to about architecture. And he's built some wonderful courses. But, uh, you know, I think he's got pancreatic cancer. But no, I've, I've talked to Gary. Uh, you know, you, you people that you admire and, 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 and want to talk to in the game, I've been very lucky that way. Can I ask you? Can I ask you some very specific questions? Just short answers. The best putter in the world: Bobby Locke, Bob Charles, or Ben Crenshaw? Oh, we'll leave that third guy out. I tell you what. I, there's no, I'm honest, Dale. There's something about left-handed putters. Bob Charles got over the ball, looked like he'd never miss. God, what a beautiful putter he was. But I tell you what, I never saw. Bobby Locke putt, but I watch films, and I I am amazed by the touch he had and the way that he had that closed stance and the way that it was a big, long backswing, and it was a little inside and kind of over the top, and he, they say he used to take almost a little nip out of the green when he putted, <laughs> a little like Gary did. Uh, they used to tell me stories about him that were just mesmerizing. There was some story about him winning a South African tournament. On one last green, he said, you know, I was I knew I was close to the lead, but I had this 30-foot putt. It was over a rise, and it was quite keen, and it had a up the slope and a borrow to the left. And uh, I hit, struck this putt, and it started looking pretty good climbed the hill and started turning into the left. And he said, and you know what happened? They said, no, what? He said, it nearly missed. That's right. <laughs> can, I, can, I brag, can I brag for a second? Yes. Bobby Locke, 
Bobby Locke was never beaten in South Africa in a, in a stroke play tournament for 20 years, from 1935 to 1955. He won every South African Open in that time that he played in. He won nine South African Opens, he played in nine. But in 1952, my father beat him in a match play tournament. Oh, my gosh. Really? I've got to brag a little bit. My father was the only person who beat him, other than other than Sam Snead, also beat him in one match that they played in. Isn't that incredible? I, I, did, hear Sam, I did hear Sam one day tell me, he said, he said, Bobby Locke, he said, he beat me so bad down there. It was unbelievable. I, I nudged one match out of him. I don't know. That's I right. 11 or something. He got paid every time. One last question you got from me. The greatest player that ever lived. Jack Nicholas or Tiger Woods? This is tough. Uh, <laughs> Tiger yeah, well uh, Jack for now has got the record. I'll, I'll say this. Nobody's ever played the game like Tiger. No. The world will never forget the things that he did on the golf course. Jack Nicklaus's record is stupendous about how many times he finished second and third, as well as all the championships that he won. But nobody's ever played the game like Tiger. And and he changed changed the world of golf. You know what? It could be young Tom Morris could have been the best player ever. Well, Ben, we can't have you on the podcast and not talk about the 1999 Ryder Cup. So let's go back many, many years and... Heading into the Sunday, because you were trailing 10-6 in the singles going into the final day, you say to the media at the press conference that evening, and once again, let's think about the Masters and Harvey Pinnock, and once again, fate comes into it, and you say at the press conference, I'm a big believer in fate. I have a good feeling about tomorrow. That's all I'm going to say. You then get up and walk out. <laughs> that's pretty bold stuff from a captain that's four behind heading into the final day and who's because there was a lot of other controversy and stuff happening off the course as well in 1999 with the U.S. team. Wow. Well, things kept happening that week that are a little bit unexplainable too. Um, that night of the press conference, uh, our team was frustrated. Although we were playing better, we started to learn the golf course and play it better as they were too. But uh, it's funny, I wait. <laughs> I saw some things Saturday afternoon out of our team that I thought was would is very positive. And our team camaraderie got better throughout the week. And you know, as you know, we had uh, we had a bit of fire before the proceedings because we had a couple of guys who wanted to get paid, and it sort of split the team philosophically for a while. And it it sort of all congealed. We all forgot that, and we started playing. That course, and I, you know, I had a, I had two of my best friends, Bill Rogers and Bruce Litsky, were my co-captains. They said some wonderful things. We were inspired by Hal Sutton's words, by a lot of other people, Bill Mickelson. We had some great leaders on that team. Davis Love. We all had a great uh, get together on Saturday night. But I think what made me say what I did is I was, I was asked the same question three times in a row. And I was a little upset because I answered all of them. And I said, you know what? I have a feeling that we're going to do well tomorrow. And I sort of left. Uh, I'm a big believer in fate. And I always thought that fate had a hand in, in 
championships and in tournaments sometimes. Sometimes it just happens that way. I just had a feeling that that place was going to take care of us because the track record for Brookline was that an American came out on top of every tournament that was played there, whether it was the U.S. Amateur or the U.S. Open. And, you know, one of the the greatest things in American golf happened on that course when Francis, we met one in 1913 as a 20-year-old from across the street. And uh, lo and behold, our team burst out of the gates that day and just played remarkable. Well, yeah, I mean, it's the stuff of, of legends. And, I mean, no team had, had ever come back from more than two points to win on the final day, and, and your guys did that. But you took a major, major gamble putting your six best players out first. That could have ended very, very badly. Oh, big, big gamble. Big gamble. And the partners and the pairings came out as, as well as we could have. But there was, it was very simple, though. If we didn't start out that day in a, in a, a forceful way, we were cooked. And lo and behold, we started playing well and started winning. Uh, and that breeded a chain reaction throughout the team. And this thing kept happening all day. And then towards the end of the day, if you don't think history doesn't repeat itself, on that green, the 17th green, is where Justin Leonard made that putt. But that's actually the same green that Francis we met hold an improbable putt in 1913. That green, and, and then in the playoff, he made another putt on that same green of all things. And Francis we met lived across the street from that green. And I'm telling you, Justin made that putt. I thought, I said, oh, my God, it's Francis, the spirit of Francis we met. It, it was spooky, very spooky. Ben, as people would probably have picked up by now, you are a major scholar of the game. You're a huge believer in etiquette, the way the game is played. Tell us about the U.S. team's reaction after Justin Leonard sank that putt and the fallout following that, because it it was huge. Oh, you, we well, listen, we, we should have apologized, and we did. We lost our mind. And, uh, you know, the fact is that no one in the world would think that Justin Leonard was going to make that putt. I mean, it just came out of the sky like a lightning bolt, and we didn't know what to do. We, we all we lost our heads, and we we should have apologized. And it, it was something that was uncontrollable. But no, I, I've never seen anything like it. But uh, no, it was we were rightly chastised, you know, for for a while. But uh, man, I it's the most improbable putt I think I maybe ever saw in my life. Ben, we could talk to you for another five episodes but we have to wrap it up thank you so much for giving so generously of your time and i'm glad to hear as the podcast went on your cough improved because uh, that's not something you want in 2021 uh thank you very much for for joining us on the podcast it's been great speaking to you yeah no i've, I've got i've got typical austin allergies here we've got the most terrible we've got we've got cedar we've got allergies hey it gets me every year you're welcome it's a pleasure to talk to you both Thank y'all. There it is. A win for the ages. The long and short of it. Simon Hill and Dylan Rogers. Thanks for listening. We'd ask our friends, except we don't have any. So please like and rate this podcast. Until next time.